Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We will be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kleteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard Carmen and John recall the latter portion of Dick DeGaran's questioning of Robert Durst. In this episode, they offer their memories of the beginning of Prosecutor John Lewin's cross-examination of Robert Durst. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that each of these jurors mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We begin today's excerpts from my conversation with juror number 12 and jury foreperson Carmen Kleteka by asking her about her memory of perhaps the most significant series of questions of John Lewin's entire cross-examination of Robert Durst. John Lewin asked Durst, would you lie under oath to help your case? And Robert Durst said, yeah. And then Lewin asked, okay, have you lied thus far during your testimony at this trial? And Durst said, no. And Lewin said, but if you had lied, given your last answer, you might not admit it, correct? And Durst said, correct. Right. I mean, that honesty, it, it comes through at the weirdest times. But, you know, I did appreciate it very much. And that's one of the things that made him endearing was that honesty. And then Lewin presents a question he asked in New Orleans, which was, if you had killed Susan Berman, would you tell me? And Durst said, no. And Lewin asks, would you agree, Mr. Durst, that once you admit you would lie to keep from admitting something damaging to the jury, would you agree that that pretty much destroys any credibility you would have? And Durst says, no. What was your response when you heard that exchange? I thought it was pretty arrogant. And you know what? You know what I thought about when when he said no to John Lewin when he asked him, you know, if you had killed Susan, would you tell us? And he said no. I I think he said that. He answered honestly. I think he did that out of respect for John Lewin because you know they they've gone toe to toe for a long time, and I think uh, he said he said no that it would not ruin his credibility. That was. Bob Durst and his arrogance. And then later in that questioning, he denied assaulting his wife and yet acknowledged that he grabbed her by the hair. And to be specific, Lewin asked, when you grabbed her by the hair, was that assault? And Durst's response was, some people say I grabbed her by the hair. Some say I grabbed her by the coat. And yet he continued to insist that he never assaulted Kathy. 
What did you make of that when he answered that way? I wondered if he was advised to say that, but uh, because he had never denied it before. And clearly he was talking about it on the video. Like, what's the point of saying that now? What do you remember of John Lewin springing a trap on Robert Durst based on Durst's direct testimony that Kathy attended drug rehab? Robert Durst had just finished describing how his wife, Kathy, had just enrolled in a drug rehab program at a hospital near their home called Lenox Hill. And how he was like helping her through that and everything that he was doing was to help her and she was such a mess and you know he's such a great husband and so supportive and she was so terrible and drug addict and he was just trying to help her get through that drug rehab program so she could finish medical school i mean he made it sound like he was you know getting her out of bed and doing her homework it was pretty comical But, you know, John let him go on with all of his descriptions of that. And then after that, he brought up the subject of the match. And he asked Bob if he knew where Kathy had matched for residency. And, I mean, this is a pretty big deal. He described himself as being very involved. And if this is the case, then so the match is when you find out where you're going to go for residency after medical school for your training for your specialty. And that's like a four-year thing. And it sometimes it involves moving to a different city, a different state. And it's a pretty big deal. It affects the whole family. And John Lewin asked him if he knew where she was going to match. And he clearly had no idea. In fact, I think he said that she wasn't doing that, if I'm recalling correctly. But I mean, clearly, he was not involved at all by his answer. And at that moment, John pulls out a surprise and shows us on the screen a paper showing the match document showing where Kathy had matched for residency. And it was very, very interesting because the hospital where she matched her number one pick for her and for the hospital. They pick each other. And number one for both was Lennox Hospital, which is the same hospital where Bob had claimed that Kathy was enrolled in a drug rehab program. And that was a big shock. As someone who didn't go to medical school, that was a big deal to me. As someone who did go to medical school, that must have been unbelievably stunning to you. It really was. I mean, (laughs) and when Bob saw that and John Lewin explained to him what it was, he looked completely confused. It was clearly the first time he had ever heard of that. So that showed me he was completely like not engaged. This whole story that he's trying to present for this past like week or so about how he's like, so involved and and helping her so much and she's such a disaster and he's practically doing all her work and maybe he should be credited with an MD instead of her. I'm exaggerating they didn't say that. But after hearing that, you know, for several days, how engaged he was, clearly he wasn't because this very important piece of information, it was clear that he was seeing it for the first time. So for me, that was a, a very big deal. And then, so afterwards, John Lewin asked him, does it make sense to you that she would 
enroll in a drug rehab program at the same place where she matched for residency. And he had no answer. He was quiet. And then John said, so what do you think? You think maybe it was because convenience, you wouldn't have to commute? And Bob said, yeah, so she wouldn't have to commute. That sounds good. I'll go with it. So then they continue talking about Kathy. So previously, when DeGarren was asking him, you know, he, he talked about what a helpful and involved husband he was. However, we had been shown evidence that she was not getting all this, this help from him. I mean, he wasn't even helping her with tuition. She was taking out loans to, to buy books and to pay for tuition. And I mean, clearly, I mean, just not getting any help. But when John started talking about her again, John was bringing up Kathy's, her medical school records, her evaluations, and her grades and, and stuff like that. At every turn, at every opportunity, Bob, he was making an effort to minimize any of her accomplishments. He talked about her in a cold, uncaring manner, even disdainful at times. In reference to abusing her, he showed no shame or embarrassment. And in uh, reference to her accomplishments, it was to uh, minimize. And another thing he did was to defile her character, making her out to be like this horrible person, drunken, wild woman, drug addict. So minimizing any positives while amplifying negatives. And at times, I felt like he was making up lies to to make his wife look bad. And I felt as if he was doing this as a way to to convince us that she was not worthy of living and becoming a doctor. And instead, she deserved what she got. I felt like he was trying to convince us of that. You know, I mean, sitting there trying to convince us that he like helped her so much and, and was this wonderful husband. I felt that that was incredibly disrespectful to his wife. And it was clear to me that whatever he felt for her was still strong. And whatever that was, it's not love. He felt some, it was palpable. Like he had some sort of anger. This is 40 years later and, and I could feel it. I thought he made an effort to make it look like everything that happened was Kathy and her erratic decisions. And she controlled everything. She decided everything. And he was just a guy trying to help his wife, which is interesting because he clearly was guided by his defense team to try and go with that narrative. In contrast with his interview with Jarecki, where he clearly wasn't being prepped by any defense lawyers, it was completely different. He, I mean, he admitted himself that he was controlling and that he did abuse her, and it was no big deal. Twenty years later, his story's different. The Jarecki interview came up with Lewin, and at one point, Durst said, I told Andrew what I felt like telling Andrew, and Lewin said, but I thought you told me that Andrew told you the first day to say that there was some sort of fight, and then you would say that, and then on the second day, you're saying Andrew decides to tell you the opposite to try to correct you. What did you make of the Lewin questioning of Durst about what he was saying to Andrew Jarecki? 
I mean, Lewin was on it. He didn't miss a beat. And he was there to call Durst out on on everything, which I, I really appreciated. And I think in a weird way, Bob appreciated that too. I think he, he enjoyed that Lewin was able to keep up with him. You know, at one point, he showed how disappointed he was with his team. Do you remember? I remember several times, some of which you didn't see. You tell me about it, and then I'll tell you a story. So I'm talking specifically about when, when he was on the stand, and it was right after they showed that those games had not even been invented. The Go Fish and all these games he was claiming to have played with his family when he was young. He looked at his team and... I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was, he said something like in disappointment. Yeah, he did that several times during the trial. And at one point, he wrote a letter to the judge where he was upset that his lawyers had stipulated to allowing certain conditional witness examinations to be played in lieu of testimony. He, he wanted the witnesses to come back in. And I think particularly it was the Altman's testimony that he wanted another crack at. And he actually said in his letter that my lawyers must have been suffering from temporary insanity or collective dementia. Wow, I like that. Collective dementia. I gotta say I agree with the first. See, he's 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 witty. And I think that's what people like about him. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of the early days of John Lewin's cross-examination of Robert Durst. Moving on to John Lewin's cross-examination of Robert Durst, what were your impressions of John Lewin's strategy for questioning Durst? The way he did it, the manner he did it, and set that against your expectations of how it was going to go down? The prosecution, John Lewin was a, um, they were like a master of, uh, you know, having recorded testimony or confessions queued up and played to the jury. You know, they would have it where uh, within cross-examination, they would have, uh, you know, Durst admit to one specific fact, and then they would play to the jury, you know, some uh either uh, recorded testimony or something recorded from a jailhouse call that would be completely, you know, contradict what Durst just said. And that happened over and over and over and over. So I thought that was very, you know, effective how they said, well, this you said that, well, this that's not what you said, you know, this many years ago. And it got to a point, I think the two, the one key moment where Robert Durst became his own worst enemy is when Mr. Lewin got him to admit that if he, if if Durst was asked directly, did you kill Kathy Durst? Did you kill Susan Berman? Did you 
murder Morris Black that Durst admitted he would lie to those things. I was astonished when Durst admitted to that. When he said that, I immediately looked over at the defense. I looked at Mr. DeGarren to see what his you know reaction would be because I have to think that they never would have expected him you know, to say that. That was the nail in the coffin when, when Durst admitted to that. Because anything else that he would say after that, you know, he admitted that he would lie when asked directly, you know, if he had murdered anyone, then he actually admitted, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've perjured myself uh, probably about, you know, maybe five or six times already. Did you find that in John Lewin's 2015 interview with Durst, he elicited something that came close to a confession from Durst? Yes. The thing that was interesting to me, though, that the one thing that was interesting to me is when, you know, Durst said that uh, they had thrown him into a cell, you know, completely naked. You know, he, he was just, he was sitting there, he was in the cell with absolutely no clothes and he was, and, you know, he was really cold. And at that point he was going to say anything that it took, you know, to be warm again, to have a blanket and to be, you know, fed clothes. So he was sort of, you know, he, within his testimony, he kind of admitted, yeah, you know, I was sort of stringing John Lewin along because I wanted to get out of that cold cell. I wanted to get out of the South. I wanted, you know, to get back into California. That I did kind of wonder about. All of the things that, you know, he um, was describing, you know, his his really ill or kind of unbelievable treatment in the uh, jail system was quite, you know, shocking to me. And I don't really, I don't really recall anyone actually disputing that what he was saying there was a lie. So, Well, although what he was saying in those recorded conversations in in New Orleans was, you know, quite incriminating, there was a certain amount of it where, you know, I could see, yeah, he's going to say anything to avoid, you know, being imprisoned uh, in the South. For me personally, I don't think that that testimony weighed as much until it was used to contradict things that he was saying during the trial during his cross-examination there. So the fact that he said to John Lewin during his testimony at trial that he was engaging in a plea bargain, did that strike you as a sort of admission that he had something to plea guilty about? Or did you see it more as his way of saying, I was just trying to get out of Louisiana and get back to California? For me, there was some amount of credibility that he thought the likelihood that he was going to prison was quite high, you know, regardless because of the evidence. So he wanted to be in California, you know, not in Louisiana. So for for some of the things, you know, that he was saying that, you know, it, like a bargain, I took that as more of probably uh, less of an admission of guilt to the fact that he wanted to be, he just wanted to get back to California at at all costs. It was the other aspects of evidence that, you know, for myself, sealed uh, the the guilty verdict. And as far as the the jury uh, deliberation, we didn't really focus on his testimony or his interviews in New Orleans as much as we uh, discussed, you know, what came up under under his cross-examination. 
Do you remember your reaction when Durst said that several people had told him that Susan Berman had said to them that she provided Durst with an alibi? Yes. And I would have thought, you know, he he would have been, he would have actually expressed more concern with Susan Berman. You know, he never said, you know, he told Susan, Susan, why are you saying all these things? You know, you're my friend. This doesn't make me look good. He just said, oh, that's, you know, Susan telling stories again, even though it makes me look like a, uh, you know, like a murderer. He just dismissed it all. Do you remember that in the context of the conversation about Susan Berman and about his relationship with her and things he said about her, I think specifically he was being asked about his failure to respond to Susan's telling people that she provided Durst with an alibi. He said, I did what I did because I did what I did because I am who I am. Do you remember that? moment in the trial? I do. That I found that at many times when, um, and under his cross-examination, he would be asked to explain, you know, why statements he made contradicted each other. And his response would either would, would be, he would just, he would say nothing. He would just stare back or he would just say, I said what I said, or, you know, what you what you just quoted. I, I thought that was almost that was almost an admission of guilt, those statements. We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections on the early portion of Robert Durst's cross-examination testimony, as questioned by John Lewin. We begin with Lewin asking Durst about his childhood memories. When you think about these memories of the four of you playing Go Fish, Uno, throwing the Frisbee, are those painful or are those happy memories for you? Happy memories. And is it fair to say that these images involving these activities with your mom and your father and Douglas, that they're kind of indelibly imprinted in your mind? Yes. Now, your mom died in 1950, is that correct? Correct. Mr. Durst, if I were to tell you that the Frisbee was not invented until 1957, Seven years after your mom died, what would be your response? I don't remember testifying that I played with a frisbee as a little boy. I want you to assume for a moment, Mr. Durst, that you testified to this jury on direct examination that you would play Go Fish, Uno, and throw the frisbee. Are you saying you don't remember saying that? I remember saying that we were on different sides playing Go Fish and Uno. I don't remember saying we were on different sides playing Frisbee. Well, I want you to assume for a moment that the Frisbee was not invented until 1957 and that Uno was not invented until 1971. If that were true, you would agree that these memories that you've described, these emotional memories, cannot be accurate. Is that correct? Correct. Next, we have Durst seeking to recant his admission that he had ever physically assaulted Kathy. You swore under penalty of perjury that Kathy had made up allegations of physical abuse, and you said that she had lied about that. Is that correct? I don't know what you're talking about. I never threatened her life or threatened her in any way or assaulted Kathy or caused her any physical harm or abuse. That's a lie, correct? That's true. You never assaulted your wife. Correct. When you grab her by the hair, Mr. Durst, is that an assault? 
That's the Christmas party. Some people say I grabbed her by the hair. Other people say I grabbed her by her coat. No, the only person who says you grabbed her by the coat, Mr. Durst, is you. Name me one other person who says you grabbed her by the coat. Do you know, Mr. Durst, of another individual who Tom has... Hughes. Tom Hughes. Tom Hughes. Yes, Catherine. Mary Hughes' husband, Tom Hughes, said I grabbed her by the coat. And do you have a statement from Mr. Hughes that says that, Mr. Durst? I think you interviewed him and he said that. I want to ask you, if in fact, Mr. Durst, you had threatened or assaulted Kathy, would you have said so in this affidavit? I think I would have been silent about it in the affidavit. So you're saying, so you'll lie in a courtroom under oath, you've said, on certain issues, but you're saying you wouldn't lie in an affidavit, you would be silent, is that correct? But I did not ever assault Kathy. What happened at a Christmas party, no one would consider to be an assault. And here is Lewin asking Durst perhaps the most important question of the entire cross-examination. Would you lie under oath to help your case? Yeah. Okay. Have you lied thus far during your testimony at this trial? No. But if you had lied, given your last answer, you might not admit it, correct? Correct. On direct examination, do you remember the first thing that Mr. DeGuerin asked you? He asked me if I killed Susan Berman. Did you know that question was coming? Yeah. And you denied it, is that right? I said no. If, in fact, you had killed her, would you tell us? No. You were asked this exact question at two different times during the March 15, 2015 interview, is that right? Do you remember? I don't remember. Do you remember me asking you, let's RD-329, please? This is page 51, lines 8 through 10. Well, I can tell you right away, I don't remember. I'm sorry, Mistress? I do not remember what happened in 2005. Right, that's why I'm going to play it right now. If you had killed Susan, would you tell me? Yeah. Does that refresh your recollection now? Yeah. And so even back then, you were honest in the regard of basically telling us, hey, listen, if I killed her, no, I wouldn't tell you. And, and that's where you still stand today. Is that right? Correct. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that once you admit that you would lie to keep from admitting something damaging to the jury, would you agree that that pretty much destroys any credibility you would have? No. So can you explain, Mr. Durst, if you've said you've taken an oath to tell the truth, but you've also just told us that you would lie if you needed to, can you tell me how that would not destroy your credibility? It would not destroy my credibility because what I'm saying is mostly the truth. There are certain things that I would lie about, certain very important things. So maybe another way to say it, Mr. Durst, is would you agree that the question of did you kill Susan Berman is the most important question in this trial? I would agree with that. And you've also just agreed that you would lie about that. And you've also just agreed that, in fact, if you had killed her, you wouldn't tell us, correct? Correct. So given that that's the case, would you agree then that for every important issue in this case, Mr. Durst, in essence, you've just said you're not to be believed? No. Can you explain why you say no? And if you can't, you can just say I can't explain it. The hypothetical. Did you kill Susan Berman? It's strictly a hypothetical. I did not kill Susan Berman. I heard her and lied about. So, for the jury who's trying to assess 
A, what happened in this case, and B, what your credibility is. I'm just trying to understand, having you just told them with that answer, that in essence, they can't believe anything you say about anything important. Oh. All right. You were asked the same question March 15, 2015, with respect to Kathy Durst. Do you recall being asked, if you had killed Kathy, would you tell me? I don't recall. So I, I want to... I want to, you know, and I'm going to just ask this straight out. If you, if you had killed Kathy, would you tell me? Does that refresh your memory? And Mr. Durst, if I were to ask you right now, if you had killed Kathy and I asked you, Mr. Durst, you're under oath right now today. Did you kill Kathy? Would you tell us? No. Let me ask you, Mr. Durst, if you had murdered Morris Black, would you tell us? No. In the past... Have you stated that just because you lie a lot doesn't mean you're good at it? I was following a script prepared by Andrew Direct. He literally had a script and you were reading it? Script is the wrong word. Hints are the right word. Hints was Andrew's word. Andrew Direct, he told me what to say in telephone conversations before I gave interviews. Well... Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that the reason you've been caught in so many of your lies is that they're just not very good? Well, you bring up the cadaver note. And I had to lie about the cadaver note because anyone who saw the cadaver note would have to believe that I was with Susan Berman when she died. Well, it's worse than that, Mr. Durst. You previously said on multiple occasions that, quote, that's a note only the killer could have written, correct? That's what Andrew asked me to say. That, that's another thing that Mr. Direcki asked you to say. Did he ask you to say it when you were speaking to me as well in 2015? Well, he asked me to say it once, and I repeated it. And here is Lewin springing the trap that he had set with the previous line of questioning. Did you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth during your trial testimony in Galveston? I lied trial of Galveston. I said I was in Northern California when Susan Berman was murdered. That was a lie. Is that the only lie you told during that trial? The only one I'm aware of. If you had lied repeatedly in that case, would you tell me right now? Would you admit it? I admit it. So why would I admit something that did not happen? I did not lie repeatedly. I lied once. That's not what I asked you. I want you to assume for a moment that you had lied in other place in Galveston testimony. I just want to ask you, would you admit to us that you had lied? I cannot assume something that didn't exist. It's like asking me to assume the earth is flat and then asking me where it ends. I did not lie, and I cannot assume that I did lie. So you can't be asked a question whether you would lie about something unless the thing you were had lied about it actually happened. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. So I guess, Mr. Durst, that's why you can tell us that you would lie if you had killed Susan. You would lie if you had killed Kathy. You would lie if you had killed Morris, because in fact, that's not a hypothetical. That's what you did. That is not what I did. When you were interviewed, by myself and detectives in the prison in Louisiana. Did you consider that to be a pretty important interview? No. You did not? Well, it went nowhere. 
I was right. It went nowhere. You were right. Is that what you said? Correct. So do, do you believe that you said many, many incriminating things during that interview? Yeah. So my question to you would be, why on earth would it matter what Andrew Jarecki said to you three or four or five years prior that would lead you to say those things to a deputy district attorney and two LAPD homicide detectives? Can you explain that? Because I was working on a plea bargain. You were, wait, you were working on a plea bargain. I was making a deal with you to get me out of Louisiana. Did, by the way, did you ever mention anything about you needed to get out of Louisiana during that interview? I think I made it clear that I was ready to do a plea bargain. Well, Mr. Durst, are you aware? Listen, this isn't your first rodeo regarding being charged in a criminal case, correct? I don't understand the expression. So it's not your first rodeo means that, in essence, hey, you're not somebody who all of a sudden, for the first time in 2015, is being questioned by a prosecutor and homicide detectives has never had any exposure to the criminal justice system, correct? Obviously, was wrong because I thought you would do a plea bargain with me. Next, we have the Durst testimony that completely undermined the testimony from Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, questioning the memories of witnesses who said that Susan told them she gave Durst an alibi. Right, so what Susan was doing agreed, Mr. Durst, is rather than asking you directly for money, she was telling you she's in a bad financial situation and you've always been a good friend. And you responded by writing her a check for 25 grand, correct? I don't recall a check. I don't recall how much it was. So let's put it up. This is a check dated November 9th for $25,000. That's right after you got the letter, correct? Correct. I want you to assume that Susan Berman had, in fact, made the phone call to Dean Cooperman. Would you agree that at this time, when you now find out they're reinvestigating it, that you would have had a substantial concern that Susan, with her big mouth, might say something if she was contacted by investigators? Is that a fair statement? Susan had already told the public or 15 people or 18 that she had given me an alibi by calling Albert Einstein Medical Center. There was no secret about it. Well, Mr. Durst, you know that she had told people now, but you didn't know that then. I knew some of them. Wait, so you knew before Susan had been murdered that she had told people that you had called Albert Einstein, that she had called Albert Einstein pretending to be Kathy at your request? I knew that she was murdered. And told people that she telephoned Albert Einstein to my recall. And how did you know that? I think I heard it from both Julie Malmgold and Nick Chalem. And when did you find out about that? I think Julie said something to me a long, long time before Susan Berman died. Like maybe five years before, Nick Chalem said something not that long before Susan Berman died. Now, Mr. Durst, can you explain why, if Susan Berman, for years, was telling your mutual friends that you were a murderer, why you continued to give her money? Can you explain that? You're asking me. I knew she was saying those things, and I did give her money. Mr. Durst, exactly. Does that sound reasonable? Oh, I did it. It's either reasonable or unreasonable, but it's factual that I did do it. 
you would agree that nobody is disputing that you gave Susan the money. Yes, I would agree that no one is disputing that I gave Susan Berman money. Would you agree that the issue is not whether you gave her money, it's why you gave her money? Would you agree? No, I don't even think it's an issue. I gave her money because I felt like giving her money. You felt like giving somebody a total of $275,000 who for years was telling your mutual friends falsely that you had murdered your wife and she had helped you cover it up. Is that your testimony to this jury today? I started giving Susan Berman money before Tosky disappeared. Well, Mr. Durst, we know that you gave her $50,000 by your own admission the last month of her life, basically, correct? Correct. And by that time, Mr. Durst, you were well aware for years that she had been telling people you say falsely that you murdered your wife and that she helped you cover it up, correct? Correct. Why would you give somebody money who was out there saying that you had murdered your wife? <laughs> You're like a man to analyze myself. I did what I did because I did what I did because I am who I am. And here is Lewin springing a trap that Robert Durst set for himself during his direct testimony. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that you told Morris Black that you were basically hiding in Galveston because you did not want to be Robert Durst anymore, correct? Correct. And you told him that that was your name, correct? Correct. And you ended up telling him that you were wealthy, correct? I think he figured out I was wealthy and in the conversation we had when I talked about traveling first class. And you would agree, Mr. Durst, that Morris Black was somebody who was very into figuring out what somebody's kind of story was, who they were, what was motivated. You don't think that describes Morris Black? No. And you said that as far as you know, you never mentioned anything about the situation with your missing wife, correct? Correct. Mr. Durst, do you remember the other day during direct examination mentioning, this is a paraphrase, you told Morris Black all about Janine Pirro? No. One moment. Do we have that queued up and ready to go? So when was the first time he saw you as Bob Durst and not as Dorothy Siner with Sometime the wig? Sometime in March or April. All right. Did he make any remarks about that? I told him that I sometimes wore the skies as a woman. Because I just did not want to be me. And he said he went through that a while ago. In other words, not wanting to be you, not wanting to be Bob Durst. Did you explain to him why you didn't want to be Bob Durst? Primarily because Janine Pirro. Well, you said it, correct, Mr. Durst? I said it. Well, so that means, Mr. Durst, that Morris Black was well aware who you were, what you were running from, and that you were very concerned about being charged in New York with your wife's murder, correct? No, not correct. Please explain, Mr. Durst, since you just said in response to your lawyer's question, not mine, to your lawyer's question, that you explained all about Janine Pirro. What did that mean? That's, that misstates the, the evidence that was just on the screen. Object oh. to the form of the question. Gary? Didn't say anything about all about. It's the evidence and the inferences one can draw from the evidence that make a question appropriate. Your objection is overruled. I don't think it would have been possible to explain to Morris Black about a Westchester district attorney charging me with murder 
in order to get publicity to run for attorney general. Morris Black was just not like that. Well, Mr. Durst, all it would have taken for you to explain it are the words you just said. Would you agree? But he was not like that. Mr. Durst, you testified under oath that you told Morris Black about Janine Pirro. What did you tell him? I don't remember telling him about Janine Pirro. Well, you remember telling him about Janine Pirro last week with Mr. DeGarren, correct? Correct. Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that you are dead caught in a giant lie right now and you have no idea what to say? Objection. The answer question. No, 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 and no. Objections overruled. The answer may stand. And finally, here is John Lewin springing yet another trap set by Robert Durst during his direct testimony. Are you aware, Mr. Durst, that when medical students graduate from medical school, they rank the programs and the locations where they want to go? So a person might say, I want to do orthopedics at Harbor UCLA. And they put that, that's my number one choice. They rank that number one. And then the institutions, Harbor UCLA is going to rank the medical students. And then what happens is it goes through a match and people get assigned their residencies. You're aware of this, correct? Only what I've learned here when the doctors testify. Are you aware that your wife was already making plans to go through the match? Were you aware of that? I think she was planning on not going through them. Well, are you aware? Have you gone through the medical records in this case from Einstein that your attorneys have stipulated to? Have you gone through them? No. Do you know which program in the whole world of medicine that she listed as her number one choice of where she wanted to match? Any guesses? No. If I were to ask you to pick, given everything you know, the last place that she would put to match as a resident, what place would it be? I have no idea. Can we put it up, please? Rank order. Number one, Mr. Durst, Lenox Hill Hospital. She was already there. Yes, as a drug addict patient. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we continue our conversations with Carmen and John about their memories of John Lewin's cross-examination of Robert Durst. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.